welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Welcome to my first lecture this whole year. I didn't get to lecture last semester. So uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to, to be with you here this evening. And uh, the first lecture that I've got for you today is called It's Not What You Do, It's Who You Are. And then the second lecture I've entitled Life is an Apprenticeship. And you may ask yourself, well, why did you name them those, those titles? For those of you who don't know, I'm a tradesperson by trade. I am a Red Seal endorsed plumber, and I'm also a gas A gas fitter. And so what that means is I can work on any piece of gas equipment in, in the country, uh, up to and including 50 million BTUs. And to put that in perspective, your furnace is about 60 to 80,000 BTUs, and I'm allowed to work on 50 million with the certification that I have. Okay, so it's kind of cool. Um, and, and in the second lecture, I'll get into more of my background as to how I got into the trades and why I find it very rewarding and, and how it's set the trajectory. God used it to set the trajectory of my life to even where I am now and has helped form my perspective, not just about life, as, as, as though that's not enough, but even about ministry. Uh, and even how, how we approach things in life and how everything is an apprenticeship, essentially. And that we never really stop learning, nor should we stop learning. Um, and so that's, that's why I've given these two lectures that kind of flavor of vocational education and a vocational life. So why this topic? Um, I spent some time thinking about all of this, and this is what I've come up with. And I want to share this with you. The skilled trades and the image of hard work is something that a lot of people put together quite easily. Uh, when, you, when you stop the person on the street and you ask them, what's a skilled trade? Uh, 
they may have a hard time under, uh, answering that question because skilled trade is different than even the word trade or labor. And often you'll hear the government talk about skilled trade or skilled labor in uh, opposition to just labor. And, and there is a distinction and a good distinction, I think. But more often than not, people who are in the, in the know uh, and in that world often talk about dirty hands, clean money, which essentially translates into it's an honorable life. You get your hands dirty, uh, but the money you make, uh, and I'll talk about a biblical and a Christian perspective about that very soon, but the money that you make is what they call clean money. There's no, there's no dirty background to it. You're not, you're not doing something nefarious in the, on the street corner or dealings in a, in a smoky room or, you know, you're not, you're not selling somebody out or, or charging extra ordinary amounts. Although if you hire a tradesperson today, you might feel that you're paying more than, than, than what you're getting for. But uh, that's a whole other lecture for a whole other day. But there's this idea of dirty hands and clean money. And especially over these last two years, there's, there's really been a focus on professions, lines of work that are recession-proof, that are recession-proof. And let me give you a little background to that. When I first got into the trade some 24 years ago, uh, I did my homework because uh, I wanted to pick a trade that was not only interesting, uh, but one that would last, one that I knew that there would be some longevity in and that I could keep working on it for decades. Uh, and so I would go to the library and look up stuff and, and they would, they were already telling me 24 years ago that they were going to run out of skilled labor in 10 years. That narrative hasn't changed. In fact, it's gotten worse, uh, that they don't estimate that they'll be able to, to fill their skilled labor quota for another decade or two, if ever. Uh, and so if you do quick searches on online, you'll find that some trades are, are well behind in the 10 to 15, 20,000 person range. That's how many they need in the next 10 years. And there's just not the amount of people going into trades now that there was even 20, 30, 40 years ago, which seems like a long time. But in the, in the scope of things, in the world of trades, 40 years is nothing. 40 years is, is really nothing. So there'll always be a shortage of skilled labor. There's always going to be a shortage of skilled labor. Um, and, and I think that that has something to do with the way that people value a good day's work. And what does that even mean today? I grew up in a tradesperson's home. My dad was a tradesperson. He was a power line technician, which means he worked on the power lines that you see in, on, the, on the poles. So he worked here in BC, he worked for BC Hydro. He worked for Alberta. He worked for Saskatchewan. We actually lived in the Northwest Territories for a number of years. We were going to go to Libya, um, but then Gaddafi took over the country. And my dad thought, okay, we will go from a nice Mediterranean climate to tundra. <clears throat> so we went up to, we went up to Tuktoyaktuk. And so we were there for a while. We lived in Yellowknife. We lived in Whitehorse. And then we moved back down to BC. So um, the value of a good day's work 20, 30 years ago, I think is going to be the definition of that's going to change today. What? What do people call a good day's work? And essentially the value of that is in the eye of the beholder. Because when I show up to somebody's house to do some work, <clears throat> they have a very clear idea as what a good day's work looks like. And oftentimes it's different than what I look at a good day's work. And so it all comes down to this issue of what do you value? Right? You, there's, there's, 
there's this idea of having money for doing nothing. And if I can, if I can say a slant or two against our governments, they've been pouring money into people's pockets with really no value behind it, other than increasing our debt load uh, provincially and nationally. And I think to a certain degree, <clears throat> training people to stay at home and receive money for nothing. And I think that's one reason why you're seeing a, a larger disparity now of people going into the workforce and people not going into the workforce. There was a book written now about 10 years ago by a very well-known a blogger at the time, and now he's not so much a blogger, he, he does a lot of stuff on YouTube, and he's one of these angel investors who got in at the ground floor with things like Facebook and Twitter and you know, probably paid a couple thousand dollars to get in, and now he's a gazillionaire. But he wrote a book called The Four-Hour Workweek, and, he, and his name is Tim Ferriss. Is a great first name. Um, and it's, it's actually an interesting book because what he does is he systematizes everything and he tries to automate things as much as he can so he can condense his 40-hour work week into four hours and then spend the rest of the time doing whatever he wants. Now, not everybody can do that. Uh, even in the knowledge work sector, in academia, um, and, and, and areas that surround academia, that's, almost, that's still almost impossible to try and get a, a, a 40-hour work week condensed into four hours a week. But the book became as popular, and it's still a, a perennial bestseller. Because people are chasing a dream of being able to get money for nothing. There's very much a perspective of what I call a stratification of vocations. You've probably heard the term white collar, blue collar. If you haven't, now you have. <laughs> but there's this, there's this delineation, a very clean delineation between what's white collar and blue collar. Now, some may even wonder where, where do we get those terms from? And the term blue collar was really a, a term used for people who worked with their hands, either on the factory floor or out in the farm, because they generally wore blue clothing. Because it didn't show dirt and grease as much as white clothing did. And so they were able to get away with wearing their shirts two or three days in a row without having to wash them. And so they were often called blue collar workers. Okay? Now, white collar workers, we may be more familiar with that term. White collar are those workers who don't usually use their hands. They're, they're a management style or they're a highly educated class of people. And they very rarely get their hands dirty like a blue collar worker would. And so early on, there was a distinction between which, essentially, which class you fit in. Were you blue collar or white collar? Supervisors were usually blue-collar workers because they came out of the, 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 the big crowd of factory workers. So there was, there was workers on the floor, and then there were supervisors that were mixed on them. But if you got into management, middle management or higher, you changed your shirt color so that people would recognize you. And that's even true today. Like if you go into a job site, when I was on the job site about two decades ago, different trades would wear different colored hard hats so that you could pick them out from a distance and know who the sprinkler fitter was, who the plumber was, who the carpenter was, who the engineer was. And that person was usually the one with the cleanest clothes. But it was, it was an identifiable piece that you could, you could differentiate very, very quickly. 
And so areas like medicine and law, and like I said earlier, academia, science, research, finance, they elevated to the point of being called white collar workers. And they were the ones who usually hire the blue collar workers. And because they were white collar, for the most part, a couple decades ago, 40 years ago, they generally made more money than blue collar workers. But that now is, if not balanced, it's inverted. So skilled trades is that area where people usually develop some kind of hand skill that differentiates them from the rest of the labor crowd. So skilled trades are those trades that would have to go to school and get technical training. So they were skilled more than a general laborer was. And they were, they were worth more in the sense that they knew more, but they could also manage crews of people because okay? they knew the language. They know how to build things. So therefore they could run crews to help build these things that they were in charge of. And so there, there, there became this, 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 this name called skilled trades. And there's a growing disparity between sectors as well. And that goes back even to uh, the medieval period. And I'll talk about the history of trades and guilds in the second lecture, but there was this growing disparity even in the middle ages. There were three classes of people. There was the clergy, there was nobility, and then there was the commoner. And very rarely did you jump from one class to another. In fact, you, you could never really be nobility unless you were born into nobility. Some people would jump a class and leave the commoners to go into the clergy, to go into the priesthood. But early on, most of those who went into the clergy were from nobility. And so you had this distinction of clergy who were, who were known for being people of prayer and of the book. Okay? And then you had those in nobility who were often looked at as those who would fight and defend, but also rule. And then you had the commoner who was the worker. Tremendous things were done to them. Horrific things were done to them because they were often looked down upon as the low end of humanity. And so it started early in, in this era of disparity and class uh, designation. We look at Plato's book, Republic, and he identifies that there's a labor class. He identifies a, a class of people called auxiliaries, and they were the peacekeepers. Okay, so they, they were either part of the military or part of some kind of civil arm of government, where they were the ones who kept the peace. And they were given a sword. And then there were the philosopher kings who really looked down on manual labor, menial manual labor. In fact, they, they tried to avoid it at all costs. And some philosophers, including Plato, have actually said that if you are in that, in that class of, of, of labor and commoner, you need to get out of that as fast as you can. Because it's, it's, quote unquote, a dirty job. And so there's, there was a lot of disparity that was shown to that class of people because they were always dirty. Right? And so having your hands clean meant that you were of a nobler class or you were at the top of the food chain. So this idea of disparity in class goes all the way back to ancient Greece. 
But let me take a, a sidestep here for a second and, and introduce us to a, a biblical perspective of work. And the first, if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 15. Context is creation. God has finished creating. He's created man. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, listen, to work it and keep it. So there are some people who think that work is a curse. (laughs) We can sometimes feel that way, can't we? That our labor is is a curse. But in fact, in the beginning, it was meant to be a good thing. It was meant to be a good thing. God put Adam into the garden to work it and keep it. The next chapter, chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we pick up the narrative, the historical narrative. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, listen, to work the ground from which he was taken. So work isn't a result of the curse. There's been a lot of changes to the nature of work because of the curse. But work was there before Adam and Eve fell. They were to work the garden and keep it. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we see them being kicked out of the garden to now work the ground, which is cursed now because of the fall. And his labor in the earth will be hard, laborious. He will sweat and it will be hard. If I could turn your attention to Isaiah and one of the beautiful prophecies that the Lord God gives to Isaiah. I think this, along with other verses, point to our time in glory and work will not disappear. It will be different than here, but it won't disappear. It didn't, it was, it was there before the fall. It's here after the fall. And when we're in glory, it will be there too. But listen to what he says. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. When we look to Jesus's life, son of God incarnate, he worked. We know that his father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And there is no reason to dispute the the reality, even though we're not shown it in scripture that Jesus himself would have learned that trade from his father. That was common practice. And so it's, it's no stretch of the imagination to think that Jesus would be hammering things together, sawing things, planing, working with wood with his hand. And then as an adult, after he's commissioned into his ministry, we're told in Matthew chapter four, that all these people were coming to him and he healed them all. He healed them all. And that, that, should, that should cause us to pause for a second. He didn't just heal some. And he just didn't heal many. He healed all who came to him. There was a lot. Because at the end of that chapter, we're told 
that they came from Judea. They came from uh, the Decapolis. They came from Syria. They came from regions all around. Thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus to get healed. So he worked hard. And we're told that he would often draw himself away to pray. And also to prepare because his work wasn't finished. And in Mark chapter 6, after the, after the apostles returned from Jesus sending them out, the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to, in, a, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they worked hard. So hard that Jesus said, okay, you've done this. Let's go now get some rest. Because we're going to have to work some more. There's more to do. And in Paul and his example, especially in 2 Thessalonians, where he says to them, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Now, let me just put a, a, a pause there for a second. There were many times where he said, he repeated that he was an apostle and he deserved the rights of an apostle, but he would often reject those rights to help provide a model for the church to look at so that they would do the same thing that he was doing. Let's continue on. He says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. You hear that? It's not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not. And my wife and I jokingly used that phrase in our house when our kids were younger. Every once in a while, if you're not willing to work, then I guess you're not going to eat. And then in Acts chapter 20, Apostle says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So he didn't just work for himself. He worked for those in his, in his group as well. And earlier in Acts 18, he says he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. But they were tent makers by trade. He was a leather worker. One of the hardest jobs in that era to do was to work with leather. It's not an easy trade. That was his. This is the Apostle Paul, who, educationally speaking, probably had this equivalent of two doctrines and could command rights to never work again as an apostle. He wrote scripture. He was taken to the third heaven. He's heard and seen things he was not allowed to utter to other people. And yet he still worked with his hands. Not just so that he could go and pay his way at certain times and in certain ways, but also for those who were with him. And he had no shame in doing that. So this idea of work, biblically, I think, is, is really more about the providence of God than actually doing the physical labor. So what do I mean by that? First of all, what I mean by that is that the concept of vocation or the concept of work 
really has to do more with God's providential care in our life to actually learn, earn a living. Because God gives us everything, including our breath, the strength that we have in our body. He gives us minds to understand things. Some of us are better with our minds mechanically. Some are better mathematically. Some are better spatially. And that's, that's great. But he's given these, us these abilities to do these things. And so I think the, the idea of work is more about seeing God providentially care for us through that work. than it is about us proving to the world that we can do things. Because that's how the world presents itself with its work, right? I can do A, B, and C, therefore I'm worth D. Now, to a degree, I wouldn't argue with that because there's some skill that you have to go and learn and be able to hone and become good at and hopefully become an expert in. And that, that demands some attention and that's not unwarranted, I think. But it gets carried too far. Where people begin looking at themselves and said, I did this. I'm at this stage in my life. I developed all these skills. I learned all these things on my own, apart from God. So when I have a chance to talk to people about work or even about the skilled trades, I make it very clear that this vocational life that we live is really about God proving his providential care to us through the work that we do. I also think that the idea of work starts in the home starts in the home. Um, my wife uh, stayed home before our last child was born, and she's been home the whole time. And I, I, I always say this, I never regret that decision. And for some of you who don't know, and for those of you listening to this later on, my wife, I say is, she would probably argue that, against it, is a registered nurse. And she was in, a, in an occupation that paid really well. And for a period of time, we were a double income family. And I don't say this to boast, but I say it to prove that God has providentially cared for us every step of the way. Every step of the way. And I think that he's, he's honored our decision to keep Marika at home, to make a home. Not just a house, not just to decorate it and you know make sure it's clean when I come home or all that stuff that we often talk about, but to really make a home, make a sanctuary, not just for the kids, but for me and for her. And I cherish that. I love that. I would never give that up in a million years. Never. Raising children and creating a home takes intentional effort. It's work. I think it should be paid. There was a time in, in our tax system where I could split my income because my wife stayed at home. That was a huge benefit for us. That's gone now. Probably never coming back. And I, and I don't like that. I think, I think wives who stay at home to raise their children should be compensated for that in a tangible way. Churches, there are many parts to the body of Christ. And we each have our God-ordained and sovereignly appointed work to do in the church. 
And so the church becomes another area that displays the, the value importance of vocation. Thirdly, there's the kingdom. Each of us will make an impact in the world for the kingdom of God. Whether you're out working in, in a particular area of vocation or if you're at home raising kids, you are making an impact for the kingdom. And so I think there's more to this idea of vocation and work than just going out and getting a paycheck so that we can hopefully buy a house and have a car and a picket fence and take a summer vacation here or there or whatever. I think it's a demonstration of God's providential care in our lives as his children. That when we step out in faith, he provides for us through the work that we do. I do also think that there's also um, this idea of the spheres of vocation. Some of us here at New Antioch, we've, we've bumped into Abraham Kuyper. Bumped into him. Maybe we've given him a little bit of an elbow in the corner once in a while. But we bumped into Abraham Kuyper and, and his spheres of sovereignty. Kuyper envisioned and taught that Christ is ruler over all areas or all arenas or all spheres of life. In fact, there's a famous quote that there isn't one square inch where Christ doesn't declare mine. Amen. He is king of all, sovereign of all, Lord of all. And I think there's overlap from one sphere to another. Sometimes our vocational life touches into our home life. Sometimes our vocational life touches into church. Sometimes it, it's about civil government. Sometimes it's about education. Sometimes it's about medicine. There's all these different spheres. And I, and I think this idea of, of vocation kind of blends through them all under the sovereignty of Christ. And that's where it needs to be, that they fall under the complete sphere of Christ. So if we, if we took a look at all those spheres of our life, we would overlay all of that with the sphere of Christ's sovereignty and rulership. So I want to give you three spheres for your consideration here this evening. I've already mentioned it once, and, that, and that's the home. And there's a high calling to be a parent these days, all days. Let me rephrase that. It's a high calling to be a parent. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, what's your wife do? What's she do for a living? And there have been times where I've said, well, she's a domestic engineer. And they kind of laugh. No, no, really, what does she do? No, she stays at home. She's chosen to be at home. I'm like, wow, that must have been a big sacrifice. Nah, not really. You get, you get used to it. It's actually kind of fun. I love it. There's so much identity packed into what we do outside the home that we often forget about the importance of the identity in the home. There's a high calling of being a parent because I think it's, it really builds into this idea of generational succession. I come from a family of Hard-working people. 
My dad worked really hard. My mom worked outside the home. My family were not Christians. That doesn't mean there wasn't a legacy there. It just wasn't a Christian legacy. And in God's sovereignty, he chose to call me out of darkness into light. He gave me a wife. We now have an opportunity to create a Christian legacy, generationally speaking, to his glory and his grace. That is invaluable. It's invaluable. So there's a high calling of doing that. And I would often, and I would often think that, well, what about those people who aren't parents, who are single, and they're not married, there's still a high calling in your life. If you're, if you're one of those who are gifted with the, the gift of singleness and celibacy would be what the Bible calls it, there's still a high calling for your life. You still have the opportunity to have generational impact. And that's that's where I would lead into the second sphere for your consideration today. And I've talked a little bit about it already. That's the church. <clears throat> Loving the Lord with everything that you have in the body of Christ. It was of such importance that in one of his very first letters, Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's our homes and then there's church. And then there's work. There's work. And I, and I, I thought about how I, how I would label this. And I, and I came up with this label. Maybe there's a better one. Maybe you can talk to me at the break, but maybe there's a better one. But I look at work now as this kingdom province, right? This kingdom province that I'm in. It's part of the kingdom, and I'm, I'm here. And in this province, God gives us prosperity and production in what we do. It's part of his providential care for us. And we're given, we're given um, commands in scripture. Employees are to treat their employers a certain way. The language is slaves and masters, but it's, it's transferable to today to those who are employees. There's a certain way that you should treat your employers, especially if they're believers. Don't take advantage of them. And, and conversely, employers to employees, treat them fairly. Give them what they are valued. Don't undercut them. There's also this idea of just weights and scales. Being fair in your commercial interactions and transactions. I want to talk a little bit about the Puritan perspective of vocation. Because I think if there was a group of, of believers who really dug deep into the idea of vocation being worship of God, it was the Puritan. They often called it faith-bearing fruit vocation. Vocation is faith-bearing fruit. And they broke it down into two areas. The first one they broke it down into was this. There's a general calling. And before you think, what does this have to do with salvation? No. They were looking at the sphere of work, the sphere of labor and vocation, 
And he said, there's a general calling here where it's out of the world through the call of the gospel and into the household of God. That's the general call. It's interesting. That once you were darkness and now you're light. Once in darkness, you were a carpenter. Now in light, you're a carpenter. but you're also in the household of God and you've become one of his children. And on that, they would build the second part of that and they called it the particular calling, the particular calling. And that's not a calling to ministry, like a pastor, an elder. This is what they meant by particular calling. That there were occupations of daily living. So if you were a carpenter before you became a Christian and you're a carpenter after you became a Christian, you would now do your carpentry work for the glory of God rather than for the glory of man or the glory of yourself. And they began looking and teaching and preaching about all areas of life are areas to worship the Lord and including your work, even as mundane as you think it is, it's glorious to God because now you're one of his children. And you're seeing firsthand his providential care in your life and in your family through the things that you do. There's a famous story of, of, of Luther talking to a shoemaker. And he's encouraging the shoemaker that his, his work can be done to the glory of God. And the story goes like this. that The shoemaker thought, well, do I have to put a little cross in every shoe that I make now? And Luther goes, no. You make that shoe so well and make it last so long that people take notice of what you're doing and they tell their friends, hey, you need to go to this cobbler and get your shoes made there because it will outlast any other shoe that you've ever known before. And so his point was, is that you work hard for the Lord and produce this really, really excellent product and people will begin flocking to you because God will bless it because you're doing it for him. And then there becomes your point of evangelism. Why are your shoes so good? Why are they so well made? Why, are they, why do they stand out amongst everybody else? Well, let me tell you, because I do it for the glory of God. And because I do it for the glory of God, he blesses it. And he brings you here into my shop. You want some shoes? I can't tell you how many times I've been in somebody's house changing on a toilet. <laughs> There's a job for you. <clears throat> and people always love to watch me do my work because they want to make sure I'm doing it right. Cause they've watched about six YouTube videos on how to change out a toilet. And somewhere along the line, they've messed it up and they call me. I come and I do it, but I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations about my faith in God or how what God has done for me in the exact moment. I'm swapping out somebody's toilet. There are times I wish, can you just call me? I'll come over for coffee. I'll have the same conversation with you. It just seems a little weird to have this conversation with you over a toilet, literally hanging over a toilet, putting it on the floor. But God uses those moments. So there's a particular calling. There's this occupation of daily living. Spurgeon said this to new pupils who were coming to his school to be trained as pastors. And this is beautiful. I love this. He says, if you failed to stay suitably employed outside of the school, what makes you think you're fit for the pastorate? If you couldn't make a regular job work for you, 
There's no way you're going to survive the pastorate. Go, and he, he, he would literally turn these men away and say, go get a job. Be in that job for a year or more, then come talk to me. I, I love that. Because he wanted to see in these men who were coming to his school a deep-seated need to do the work for God. Not the work of God, but to do their work for God. It's a huge difference. Secondly, the Puritans would talk about the stewardship of what God gives. And we see this principle laid out in scripture, right? If you're faithful with the little, I'll give you more. And if you're faithful with that, I will give you more. And the motive has to be right because James warns us, you ask what you don't have because when you ask, you ask because you want to spend it on yourself. It's not being a good steward. To steward what God gives. Thomas Manton commented this way. He said, every creature is God's servant and has his work to do wherein to glorify God. Some in one calling, some in another. So again, it wasn't about ministry. It wasn't about being a pastor. It wasn't about church work. It was whatever you are doing for work, that's your calling. And it's not because you're called to be a carpenter or a plumber or whatever, but it's your calling is to bring the cross of Christ into that vocation, wherever you are. That's the calling on your life. Now I'm not disparaging that there are some who have a call to the pastor. That's a special thing. And the Puritans would not deny that, but they wanted people to understand that the very things that they were doing were valuable. Because it dignifies all the things that they were doing. Why? Because they're, they're a child of God. So serving God through what you do rather than in what you do makes a huge difference. Right? Serving God through what you do rather than in what you do makes a world of difference. I'll quote Luther one more time. He says, God gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it's on the sheep, it makes no garment. Humans must shear, card, and spin. I love that. God gives the sheep. And through the giving of the sheep, they grow wool. But that wool doesn't jump off the sheep and magically become a garment to be worn. It takes labor to do that. And God has given humans the ability to do that. So when we do it, are we doing it to the glory and honor of God? So labor with your eyes on God. Labor with your eyes on God. One, have a constant delight in God, knowing that he is the one who sovereignly works through you. He's the one that sovereignly works through you. Constant delight in God. And I'll be honest with you. There are times in my plumbing vocational life where it was not fun. I mean, as a plumber, I worked in commercial and industrial settings. So, yeah. For those of you listening and not having the the privilege of being here to see people's faces. (laughs) Yeah. There there were times in my I'm knee deep 
waist deep, literally. It's not fun. But people have, have asked me, so why'd you get into plumbing? Really? Like right now? You want to ask me that question right now? Okay. And I tell them the story. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're that crazy Christian guy. I don't know about crazy, but okay. But a constant delight in God. Secondly, we strive for holiness. We strive for holiness in our labor. Reformers, the reformers fought hard against the Roman Catholic idea of calling in life and ministry. You see, they looked at a calling, quote unquote, calling, calling as getting rid of the common life and moving into the, into the, into the monastery and separating yourself from the world. The reformers fought hard against that. They hated the term secular and sacred because everything is sacred. And I'm guilty of saying those words myself and trying to describe to people the difference between church and non-church stuff. I'll say once in a while they're sacred and they're secular. And I catch myself because the reformers would never say that. The Puritans would never say that. Because in the Roman Catholic view, there was this higher calling in life and a lower calling in life. And I think that that's translated even into our day where many people look at the pastoral life and the church ministry life and they go, oh, that's such a high calling. I don't know about that. I know a few pastors who would probably have a lot to say to refute that perspective. Thirdly, I would want to remind us that our labor, our vocation, is, is a heroic venture. It's heroic. I don't know if I need to remind many of you in the room here this evening that the Puritans were the activists of their day. Some so much so that they forfeited their life. In a letter to the Speaker of the House of Commons, Oliver Cromwell crossed out the words, wait on, and made his statement read, who have wrestled with God for a blessing. So there was a, there was a statement in the House of Commons, and he crossed out the phrase in that statement, who wait on God for a blessing. He crossed that out. And he made his statement read, those who have wrestled with God for a blessing. Because he understood that there was labor. And in that labor, there was blessing from God. Because to wait on God for a blessing to him was privilege. It's It's a heroic venture. Lastly. I would want to remind us that it's kingdom minded. There's a here and now. There's a here and now. There's also a there and a future. And there are times where I know that in my own life, where I just, I, I just do the work. Time in. I'm not always joyful. Then there are times where God reminds me there's a future, Tim. There's a future. You're building it. 
and I'm building it through you. And often I remember back in, in, when I was out in the field working and I have opportunities to, to talk about my relationship with God and the gospel and they just, they just didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. And I would even hear there, <clears throat> hear there, that makes sense. God's saying that this isn't all there is to see. There's a here and now, but there's also a future. Keep doing what you're doing. It was beautiful. Richard Baxter said this. He said, be laborious and diligent in your callings. And callings, if I haven't made it clear by now, is just is your vocation. Whatever God has you to do, that is your calling. And if you cheerfully serve God in the labor of your hands, with a heavenly and obedient mind, it will be acceptable to him as if you had spent all that time in more spiritual exercises. It's beautiful. Because he's elevating the value of what we do. He's saying that if we do it cheerfully, the heavenly and obedient mind, it would be just as acceptable as if you'd taken that same time and spent it doing spiritual activity. Lastly, the Puritans aspired to be worldly saints. Christians, with earth as their sphere of activity, and with heaven as their ultimate hope. Again, Baxter said this to his readers. Write upon the doors of your shop and your chamber. This is the time on which my endless life depends. This is the time on which my endless life depends. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on Vocation and the Christian, Life is an Apprenticeship. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us admin at newantiochinstitute.com. We're also on Facebook, and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Take care.